Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the Outkick network, this is Outkick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. It's the tobacco road to the final four. Outkick 360 rolls on 6th and Peabody, our location. Yeehaw beer, old smoky moonshine, and you. Happy Friday to you. Here we go with the final four tip-off tomorrow. Kansas Villanova, and then Duke, Carolina. On TBS, by the way, we've been mentioning that throughout the throughout the day and uh, throughout the week, where the games will tip off just after 5 p.m., 6.09 Eastern, followed by Duke, Carolina, around 7.48 Eastern is what they're saying, but give or take two and a half hours afterwards. The second game always higher rated than the first. And that goes for CBS or TBS. But can't wait. Can't wait. I know uh, Duke and Carolina fans, maybe they, they don't need this as a part of the rivalry. But what an epic way to go out. Where we thought we may have seen, and we thought maybe they meet up in the ACC tournament, we thought we may have seen the final meeting between Duke and Carolina for Coach K at Cameron Indoor where Carolina pulled the upset on what was a day of celebration for Mike Krzyzewski. Turns out we can see that and raise them the final four and what's at stake here. Massive matchup. So the biggest TV number for a national semifinal game was Wisconsin beating Kentucky in 2015 when Kentucky was undefeated on the season. And they lost in the final four in a, in a night game, the late night game, the nightcap of a final four. And that led to the highest rated championship game since 1975, two, day, two days later, one day later. 79 with, uh, with bird magic, you're saying. 2015 Duke, Wisconsin, 28 million people watched. That's the highest number since 1979. Yeah, 79 would have been the, the bird magic game. Um, I, I think this, this game will surpass that. Uh, I'd be surprised if it didn't. Um, I believe in 2015 it was on CBS, which is going to hurt this it overall is. number. Yeah, it was. But, um, I mean, it's just... Although, hey, hey the, the, if you just compare... Last year's number on CBS in the championship game to the last time uh, we had TBS carry the title, it's, it's, uh, they're off by maybe $2 million. And that, that recently, last year, Baylor and uh, Gonzaga, 16.9 million people watched. 2018, the championship was on TBS, Nova and, and uh, Michigan, 15.9, so a million people less. Yeah, I mean, I, teams factor into that too. I'd like to see like programs in that game and, and see what the number would be like. The only way to know is if it's Kansas and Duke, what would Kansas Duke rate on CBS? You oh, know, but, if it was another year. I mean, Carolina's going to pull a great number too. Carolina, yeah. the last time they were on CBS, had 23 million watching their championship game. That was, that was Carolina and Gonzaga for the national title in 2017. Yeah, look, it, it's... 
It's rare in sports where things look like they were completely scripted. That's how good this is. I mean, you could not have imagined these two teams, first off, could not have imagined his salute night, the tribute for Coach K to be spoiled that way after they blew out North Carolina in Chapel Hill earlier in the season. Carolina was limping to the finish line at that point. But for Carolina to win the way they did in Cameron Indoor, and now for this to happen you know, a month later where these two teams get to get, get together in the Final Four, I mean, it's what more do you say about it? it it's, I said it earlier. It, it's setting itself up to be the biggest game in the history of the sport if it's a great game. If it's a blowout, we're always going to remember the time that Duke and Carolina played in the tournament in the Final Four and the circumstances surrounding it with Coach Kane's final year. But it's not going to be one of the greatest of all time. If this thing is a war and it's coming down to the last minute, it's got, it's got greatest, biggest, most impactful, greatest college basketball, most memorable, whatever adjectives you want to attach to it, it's got those type of possibilities. But if it's Carolina, like, so blowout for Coach K over Carolina, it, it's a massive moment in, in that regard. Yeah. Right? Because he moves on to the championship. Blowout for Carolina over Duke turns into what, what momentum Hubert, Hubert Davis. Davis has for that program. And they, they turn into, I mean, it, you really do throw the analytics and all the stats out for this, not just because of the rivalry. But because of the path, Paul, they, we, we saw them uh, to end the regular season. We saw Carolina win where uh, Chad's been harping on this, and he's right. Duke didn't have a, a, a second option. You know, they didn't have the, the counterpunch. Both of these teams looked terrible against Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament. Since then, Duke has been able to find their counterpunch. And North Carolina's one of the hottest teams in the entire country since that loss of Virginia Tech. I mean, both played spectacularly well. I think that's another reason that, that you really look forward to this is I, I think the odds of one of them playing poorly seem poor. Yeah, I don't, I don't right? think that happens. They're both playing very well. So we expect to see exceptional basketball out of both of them. And if you see exceptional basketball out of both of them, you know, I don't think we have to declare beforehand where the game's going to fit. But – you get a classic rivalry playing for the first time in a Final Four in a game that's either Coach K's last game or second-to-last game um, with the stakes that high and, and two blue bloods and all of that. Uh, it, it's just got so, – it's so ripe for so much um, with so many future NBA players in it. Um, it it's going to be terrific. And, and uh, you know, it's a great launching point, too, for – for Coach K's successor, to, to I mean, he's you talk. We're talking in recent days about Bruce Arians wanting to leave his program in a great spot for the next guy. Whether you're buying that's his intention with Todd Bowles or not, but here uh, Coach K certainly wants to hand off his program in a great point for John Shire, and he's doing that. Well, I mean, that's already done. Yeah, I mean, winning the title to me goes to great. K. It doesn't boost what's moving forward. They've already got the highest recruiting class that they've seen at Duke coming in. So, I mean, that, it, I think you can argue that's why we're seeing the, the sentiment of Carry some of the Carolina top. fans and the Duke fans saying, eh, we, the rivalry really doesn't need this because the perception is there's a huge boost off of who wins this matchup. And really, Carolina and how they're playing and, and what, we've, what we've seen from Hubert Davis, they're going to carry on. And same goes for Duke. 
with Shire in that recruiting it's a class. Done, yeah. done deal already. Well, America needs it. I mean, well, it's yeah, not, the outside, I, I, I agree the outside that, great. I agree that, look, there's a, a Duke basketball fan in my house that's nervous as all get out about this because it would be the worst possible way for Coach K to, to exit his career is a loss to North Carolina in the Final Four. It's more for and she would her. rather see literally anyone but North Carolina in this game if he were to lose. To not lose to them is the ultimate fear of, of Duke. To lose to them would be the ultimate fear. Um, but the rest of the country, it's great. I mean, if you love rivalries, you know these two programs. You could be the most passive college sports fan and understand that Duke Carolina has significance and know a little bit about the history of these two programs. So it's the rest of us that don't have a rooting interest that really win in this matchup. And, and look, I'm not trying to put expectation on what the game will look like after the fact. I'm pretty confident in saying it's the most anticipated game since Bird Magic, leading up to it. Those, those were two guys, not even teams really, on a collision course as celebrities of college basketball to meet for a national title, and it happened. And there was a lot of anticipation. It led to a record rating on television. This is the same thing to me in yeah. terms of anticipation. Duke-Kentucky was, was a classic because of the way it played out. Yeah, I mean, but there wasn't the anticipation for it. Right, yeah, exactly. It was, a cl- it was a classic because of the way it played out, not because of the hype. Well, uh, the, it, was, it was Kentucky was an teams. enormous underdog in that game. Yeah. You know, they were coming off probation. They weren't expected to play with that Duke team that was undefeated, I think, at that point or close to it in the 92 season, um, trying to defend their title. And they went back-to-back that year and almost got caught by Kentucky. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so anticipated. It's just I, I'm ready for the thing to be tipped up. Let's, let's see what happens. I fear, though, someone's going to be tight. I fear one side. We're going to come back and say. Well, I don't see. They, did, they, Hutton's they, hit looked, on this. they looked a little too wound up when you see the game being played out. Hutton's one hit side's on going to miss a lot I of open shots. I don't see shots. how North Carolina's tight. I, I don't. I no. mean, well, there's not a lot of pressure on them. They're the eighth seed. I mean, sure, there's regular pressure. We're in a semifinal. Let's not blow our opportunity. But the pressure here is on Duke. But Duke has responded to the pressure. Look at how they came out and played against Texas Tech. And how they responded, Paul. Yeah, I, mean, that's I mean, they played against two great defensive teams and came out smelling like roses both times, rose to the occasion. Uh, in the Arkansas game, they played a perfect seven minutes almost uh, d- down the stretch. So there's no, th- there's no tightness there. But throw in the arch rival and throw in what happened last time where they did get them. tight. I think it helps them. Both of these it teams have, are, look vastly different yeah. uh, in this in tournament. In the last month. Yeah, Baycott. For Carolinas, you know, he, he had like 22 rebounds in the previous matchup against uh, St. Peter's. Meanwhile, um, you know, he's, he's getting – he has six consecutive double-doubles. I mean, th- that dude's showing up. Um, Bancaro's he, – he's showing up. And then for Carolina, I think the guy the, – the difference maker is Caleb Love. He got to the line in the final game against Duke in the regular season 12 times shooting free throws. And in the first matchup where Duke blew them out, he scored a total of eight points. He's the difference. Well, so if remember the UCLA-Gonzaga game a year ago that we were all raving about as one of the greatest games that we've ever mm-hmm. witnessed. Well, what made it great was both teams played great. No one played bad. It was just teams, guys making huge play after huge play against good defense. Um, that's what I'm rooting for in this game, more than anything else. Not having a big rooting interest – I want both teams to play well. And I'll caution you just to say, well, because this is what's been happening, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. 
There's a week in between games. It is a funny sport. There are times teams show up and can't throw it in the ocean for whatever reason. And then we're going to come back and say, well, this team was tied. or this was... I don't know the reason, but that does happen. We've seen plenty of teams where it made no sense coming into it. I'll go back to Virginia when they were the number one seed and lost to Maryland-Baltimore County. They had won like 15 straight games, won the ACC tournament, were red hot coming into it, and they lose to a 16 seed in, in one game. So I don't want that to happen. We've seen both these teams heat up in this tournament. I want that to continue. Stadium sometimes, right? The line of vision shooting on, on rims. Yeah, but the, the stadium. These, the, see, teams team, have gotten better at that. Teams, that happens to teams. It doesn't happen to these programs. Eight of the last 14 national champions on Monday night will have been from these four teams. These teams show up in the big moments and they perform well and win titles. So uh, it's not Gonzaga. If Gonzaga's in the Final Four, I'm pointing at exactly what happened against Baylor. I'm looking at different matchups throughout previous tournaments where they do have an off night. Um, Duke Carolina, traditionally, when they reach this, this point, don't. And that, that's what... So, and I, I think, if anything, Duke Carolina has to follow what could be a great game between Kansas and Villanova. Um, no one's talking about that matchup. There's no hype to live up to if you're Kansas or Villanova. Because you're there for the main event. And the prelim may be just as good of a fight. You said something there, uh, Chad, about the week. That, that, to me, for that game, might be the biggest deal. Jay Wright with a week. Losing his guy and more, but having a week to, to figure out a way. And they're obviously Well, yesterday you said things. the opposite. You said that the, you know, because of the injury and the, the turnaround, it was going to hurt them. No, I think Paul picked Villanova. No, I, I'm picking Villanova. I think, I think they're going to find a way to win. And I think Jay Wright with a week has an advantage at, and that, that maybe uh, the, the point guard could heal up a, a little bit. Yeah, I don't the, think a week's that, enough for that. that I, I'm, on yeah, the opposite I'm side. just saying you picked Villanova because you picked them in your bracket. No, I, and I still think they're going to win. I, I think they, that he's the guy that can find a way. Caleb Daniels comes up from sixth man now. There's another guy uh, who, who hasn't lived up to his reputation, who hasn't played a lot. I'm not thinking of his name off the top of my head. Antoine something, who's been written about a lot this week, who they're thinking who was a big recruit and hasn't lived up to his billing and hasn't gotten time, who they're looking forward to emerge. I think Jay Wright's got a chance to work his magic here and raise his stakes even more. I think you need games to do that. Yeah. Like I don't think the time matters. It could be three weeks to prepare and practice. When you lose a guy that important, you hope it happens mid-season yeah, I know or even right before a conference tournament where you get a few games under your belt where you then adjust to how you play as a group. Uh, I, I think – and look, I've been, Jay Wright's proven me wrong many times before. I think Villanova gets housed. The other thing – In this game, I think it's a double-digit game Is for if Kansas. they keep it close, they shoot foul shots – Better yes. than oh, anybody, sure. maybe yeah. better than anybody ever. They're going to beat look, Harvard's record. The one, the one aspect that college basketball has against college basketball in all of their previews, it comes down a lot of times to the officiating. And that's the one area that is so inconsistent with this sport, game-to-game -game in tournaments, that you know, if Villanova gets to the line 20 times, they're winning the game. And that's so unpredictable based on the crew that they have game-to-game. So it's that that part's hard to predict. Outside of that, I think it's going to be an epic weekend. You know, people say I don't want the refs to factor into it, so I hope they stay out of it. I don't feel that way. I want them to call the game as is. 
I don't want them going in with the mindset of, let's let the kids play. Because then that gives you North Carolina Baylor, where they're just knocking the piss out of each other on a full-court press and taking the ball and going and scoring a layup. Yeah, well, that's not basketball. Don't over-insert yourself, just but don't under-insert yourself. Call it. You know, start of the game on. Don't change because one team has more fouls than the other. Don't change because of score. Don't change because of reaction yeah. to the crowd. If you see a foul, call it and call it consistently throughout the game. Teams can adjust. If it is ticky-tack fouls being called out up top, reaching in, back if, there, if there's a lot of charges being – just call it consistently start to finish and don't go in with a, I'm going to let them play or I'm going to assert control. Just right down the middle. If it's a foul, call it. That's what you want. I mean, I, if there's a ton of fouls in one of these – fine, if it's actual fouls. I'm not one that's going to look at the foul count and say, well, the refs really – had to make them their presence known in this game. No. There are games where the two teams foul too much. That's also a possibility. Just call it down the middle and don't go in with you know one mindset of how the game needs to be called. Hit us up on Twitter at Outkick360. Coming up, we uh, switch gears a bit. We will be chatting with this man, Bobby Carpenter of Outkick.com. Time to talk uh, some football headlines, and we start with Bruce Arians and the retirement and maybe the uh, Bobby's going to emphasize this. Uh, the best emphasis that uh, he could put on this is the job that Bruce Arians did with Tom Brady, regardless of how things ended uh, this week. And and we we must get the players' perspective on this with Bobby and Carpenter of a coach waiting until the end of March, right on the cusp of OTAs, to make this move in order to get the guy that he wants elevated to the position. From a player's perspective, what is that like? That's next on Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Todd Bowles is the new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And our next guest knows him well. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. Bobby Carpenter with us from Outkick. He joins us from Ohio, and he's a former Dallas Cowboy. And, well, Todd Bowles was one of his coaches. Bobby, hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, man. It's a uh, April Fool's Day. When you have four kids in elementary school and they watch a lot of movies, a lot of YouTube, they get to see all these different things that transpire and happen. So you know what? Uh, I was walking around downstairs this morning after my radio show and, uh, you know, in one of the toilets, there was, uh, some saran wrap over one of them. There's just <laughs> crap all over the place, trying to throw tacks on the floor. Like my kids viewed today, like April fools as a little bit, almost as if it was like, you know, uh, home alone, like one or two. And they, <laughs> they tried to make my house into some sort of booby trap palace. And I'm like, it's, it's not, it's not an April fools. If dad steps on attack without shoes on, like that's, that's not a funny deal. It's just going to make me angry and mad. And then you guys are like, you're going to feel the brunt of that when you get home. So well, re- to reference another movie, I also viewed it like hall pass as in it was a hall <laughs> pass from dad disciplining the kids on, on April fools. At least the tax weren't on the saran wrap over the toilet. 
No, but listen, I, I have four boys or three boys as it is. I grew up in a house of four boys. And so, I mean, like to try to keep their bathrooms clean. I mean, you're li- literally like a salmon swimming upstream. I mean, it's, it's virtually impossible. And so if you're trying to put the saran wrap down and just spray urine all over the walls <laughs> and all over the place, especially now, like it's one thing if they contain it to their bathroom upstairs where the boys are but we're doing it in the half bath downstairs, you know, the, the powder room. Like we got guests that come in there, like yeah. real people that come to the house. We can't be having that nonsense. Oh, so we have a, a no nonsense April fool's rule on the show where if we're reporting something or we're passing something along, we're, we're just telling our listeners and our viewers, Hey, we're not trying to fool you here on this day. And we, we wouldn't do that normally. Um, from a kid's perspective, it's all fair. But from your perspective, I mean, you host a daily radio show in, in Ohio. All right, you feel the same as us, or are you in for a good prank? Yeah, I mean, if you want to do, like, something small, I think that's all right. I'm, I'm not really into, like, you know, pranking people that are coming to you for some sort of information and putting bad stuff out there because, you know, as you guys know, I mean, you got your, your time spent listening. Someone might be listening, and then all of a sudden, if you're going to throw out some bad information, it's going to be a, quote, April Fool's joke. And all of a sudden, you know, they stopped listening and went in and they may pass that off. They're going to feel foolish. They're not going to enjoy it. And so I don't really like to do anything like that. If we want to keep some office hijinks, something like that going, you know, that's all right. But you guys are on in the afternoon. It's, it's the Cadillac session. Everybody's locked in and ready to go. You know, I'm on from six to nine. So it's, it's early in the morning. So if you want to try to do it, a prank at that point, like most people just don't have the energy or even really have the patience to pull it off. You put out a little bit of a tribute. I thought this was really cool. The last of your college teammates to finish his playing career is Malcolm Jenkins. What, what's that like to, to, to know? <laughs> I guess it ages you out a little bit, but, but that your, your last guy is, is finished. And it's, uh, it's a sobering prospect. When I saw that, and I'm starting to rattle through, and I'm like, okay, Malcolm was a freshman my senior year. I think everyone from his class is done. Is there anybody that was a sophomore, like hanging around there? Like Ted Ginn was still playing, you know, a couple of years back. Is he still in there? And I'm like, looking, I'm like, yeah, I think Teddy's done. I saw him at pro day. He didn't seem like he was, you know, going to be getting ready to play this season. And so it's just, it's tough. You look around and like, there'll be a day when I look at the NFL and there's not anyone playing, assuming Tom Brady eventually retires at some point, like he will eventually have to die. So you know, there will be a time where he does no longer plays football, but, you know, Stafford's probably my, my best hope given the fact that, you know, he's a quarterback and probably has another five years left, but it, it, it's tough. Like you look around like, man, I used to know guys on this team and that team. And I played with that guy in college and I played with that guy in the NFL. And it's, it's really cool to sit there and talk to my kids about that. And we're watching Monday night football, Sunday football and everything else. And, uh, you know, you have those little stories and you can tell some you know, human interest pieces to your kids and give them something anecdotal that, you know, they think it's cool. Then go tell their friends. And now I look in college, I'm like, man, all the guys are gone. And Malcolm was the last one. And man, he, Malcolm Jenkins, you know, I, I'm you know, close with Sean Payton and I was talking to him when he they let him go. And I was kind of amazed when, you know, he walked and went to Philadelphia. And after about a year, I thought I saw Sean again in the summer. He said, this is a mistake. We should never let him leave. Like not only for the player, but the type of guy he is. And there's certain players that you have gentlemen, where like this, what they provide is even greater than just what they can contribute on the field And Malcolm's leadership, like his rugged determination, like he's a bell cow, like he's a trendsetter and your team is better because of him. Your defense is always going to be better because he's on the field, not just because of what he does, 
but man, the accountability of what he holds to, you know, all other people to, he plays so hard. He's got this like dog, the, the, they call it the dog inside of him, man. Like you don't let that guy down and he's going to play so hard all the time. And, you know, anecdotally, I go to this, this quick story. He's a freshman. He was our nickelback my senior year. And of our 11 guys on defense, I think eight of them are seniors. We had like a junior or two. And then Malcolm was literally the lone guy who we brought in on third you know, third and second passing downs to get on the field. We're playing Penn State. It's over in Happy Valley. It's at night. We run a corner blitz with him. I don't forget A.J. Hawk. They, they end up running the ball. A.J. Hawk, our weak side linebacker, you know, leverages the ball out. to. It's supposed to go to Malcolm. He goes too deep. The ball squirts between them. You know, I come over, I'm on the other side of the field. I was like, what the heck happened? We had a perfect call into that. It should have been bang, bang. You know, I like, look over, my age is like, right, listen, I did what I was supposed to do. And, you know, Malcolm, you know, it's like, yeah, it was too deep. I was too deep. And I'm like, listen, dude, it can't happen. This is Penn State. This is nice. This is ABC. This is a top 10 game. I was like, you got it? And he looks back. He's like, I got it, man. I got it. And he looked at me like deadpan. And you could see, and you can tell with guys, like there's a subtle confidence that, you know, he, you knew he wasn't going to mess up again. Like that's the same mistake was not going to occur. And it's just incredibly impressive when you run across those guys in sports who have that confidence at such an early age. And you know, once they're mature, once they've been in there a while, they're going to be really good. And I think that's kind of you know the story of Malcolm Jenkins' career and ultimately what he was. Bobby Carpenter with us on the Outkick Network. Bobby, Bruce Arians retires. They have elevated, and with Bruce Arians' blessing, Todd Bowles into the head coaching role in Tampa Bay. Your thoughts on the timing of this and what an, an opportunity for Todd Bowles, who now inherits a team that is a Super Bowl contender with Brady back. Yeah, it's, it, it's fantastic on a lot of levels. Um, you know, if you look at this in the NFL, they made, you know, they put, put the, you know, it's a bunch of guardrails in place. They've got the Rooney rule and, you know, they just passed something else where you want a minority coach or a female coach on each side of the ball. You know, I, I like to start with that because, first of all, I've never played on a team where we didn't have at least one minority coach on each side of the ball, if not multiple, where it was almost a split staff. And I look at that, like Todd Bowles was with us in Dallas, and you could tell then, like he was going to be a good defensive coordinator. He was going to be a good head coach. He was a former player. He related well to players. He understood the game incredibly well. You know, he got his chance with the Jets, and they had a good year. I think went 10-6 and six his first year and then faded off after you know they, they got in a contract mess with Ryan Fitzpatrick. But I'm like, man, as soon as he gets another chance, he's going to really have a shot. And I, I got a chance to talk to him last offseason. You know, he was taking his son around recruiting. He came up to Ohio State, and, and we're just talking, reminiscing about some of the old times. And, you know, it's like, you want to be a head coach again? He goes, yeah, when the time's right. He goes, I'm not in any rush. He goes, man, New York, he goes, it ages you like a dog being a head coach there. He goes, it's brutal. But he's like, I'm, I'm good. And I was kind of talking to him about the hiring practices and, you know, everything. And like, he was like, I felt like he got a fair shake. He goes in New York, man, everybody, everybody gets fired there. He was just terrible. And I'm glad he got this opportunity. What's interesting enough, you know, it's Tom Brady. I think he's a guy that craves structure and, you know, Bruce Arians, you know, he's, he's kind of the fun dad a little bit and it worked for a while and it worked well. And I don't think there was any big rift between, you know, Bruce and Tom, but I do think Tom probably likes a structure that's a little bit closer to Belichick than maybe Bruce Arians. And the irony of this is, like, Todd Bowles, he came up in that system. Like, he came up under Bill Parcells, you know, has been around Belichick. Like, those guys understand a certain way that you kind of practice and how you run your team. And so I honestly think for Tom Brady, even though it's a defensive head coach, that this will probably feel a little bit more familiar for, for him than maybe even, 
you know, an offensive guy like Bruce Arians. So I'm excited to see how this is going to work. And, you know, you look at the Vegas odds. I mean, Vegas knows everything. I don't believe the line has changed all that much, if at all, for where the Bucs are for their potential to win a Super Bowl. I think they're one of the top two, one or two favorites still in the NFC, and I don't see that changing. Well, which tells you the significance of Brady being there, not necessarily the coach. And then the biggest cap, uh, tip of the cap to Arians is the recruitment of Brady. I mean, ultimately, he, he hoists the Lombardi Trophy because of Tom. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the other things that people are talking about this rift and, you know, coexistence and everything. Tom came back and he came back knowing that maybe there was a possibility of this, but ultimately he chose Tampa Bay, you know, because of the roster, because of the division. He's a smart guy. He looked at a lot of things, but ultimately the guy you're betting on too, is your, your head coach and the offense that you're going to be running. And so Bruce Arians, you know, much like John Elway, you could argue the two greatest recruiting pitches you know, in NFL history, and maybe the third with Reggie White ultimately leaving Philly and going to Green Bay. But you think about big free agents and gentlemen, how so many times we we hype this stuff up and trades and all this, everything, and it just doesn't pan out. It doesn't work. You look at like Reggie White went to Green Bay, ultimately delivered a Super Bowl. He's there with Brett Favre and, you know, the rest is history there with you know, how that franchise was, able, franchise was able to turn. You look at what John Elway was able to do, bringing in Peyton Manning and recruiting him to Denver getting to a Super Bowl, winning ultimately another one. And then this is right there with those. Tom Brady, the most accomplished quarterback in NFL history. You know, there were some teams that probably maybe liked their current guy and didn't know how much Tom had left in the tank. But really for most teams, listen, if Tom Brady calls and said, hey, I want to be your quarterback, you're going to find a way to make that work. And he chose Bruce Arians and he chose Tampa Bay. So I think that speaks a lot to ultimately who Bruce Arians is as a coach, who he is as a person. He was never going to be the lifer like Bill Belichick. He's a much different guy. He likes to have a cocktail, relax, and spend time with his family. And I appreciate that. I think Tom did, and ultimately he chose him. And it's you know goes down. It got, it got Tampa Bay their second Super Bowl, and it won Bruce Arians you know his first and probably only. Bobby, there's a lot of talk about Deshaun Watson's contract all over the country, but especially there in your state, in Ohio. What did you make of Ravens owner Steve Bashotti and what he had to say about the contract and being angry about the precedent that it sets for other owners? You know, and it's it's interesting, and, and you can play this a couple of ways, and I'm glad you went there with that because you know, I think a lot of people that said he, we didn't, he didn't think that he was the guy to get that you know, first fully guaranteed five-year deal, not the Kirk Cousins three-year deal, but a big five-year, essentially NBA Supermax. And a lot of people point to it like, okay, he's saying that because of the off-the-field stuff, you know, the the sexual assault allegations and everything else. But I think Biscotti's really looking at the fact that, you know, I haven't paid Lamar Jackson this. And now you set a terrible precedent. And now all of a sudden, this is going to be what we're going to look at. And they're going to continually bring this up. And let's face Lamar Jackson, you know, he's a really athletic quarterback. That's what makes him special. He might be able to develop more as a passer, but it's still without his legs. He's not near as effective. And so five-year guaranteed contract for him is a lot different than most quarterbacks, but it doesn't matter because this is going to be the reference point. And these other young quarterbacks start coming up and they, they get their deals, you know, Kyler Murray, they're going to start looking at this and saying, I want a five-year fully guaranteed deal. And I think Steve Bashotti is, you know, kind of upset with the fact that, hey, Jimmy Haslam broke the code. And I can pin it on the fact that I don't think that maybe he deserved it because of the off-the-field stuff. But I think in reality, it's more the fact that he set that precedent. 
I have a young quarterback who we haven't paid yet. He's going into his final year of his deal. And now all of a sudden, this is going to be where the negotiations start. And this is what I'm going to have to work with. I'm thinking you feel differently about Andy Dalton in, in New Orleans than, uh, than most people who don't well, rate I mean, him as, I mean, as much of anything behind Jameis Winston. Let me ask you this. Do you, how good do you feel about Jameis Winston being now, the starting I don't feel, quarterback? I don't feel good at all, but I don't feel good about Andy Dalton either. And it, when I, I'm not saying that Andy Dalton is going to be Matt Stafford going there, but if you look at Drew Brees and what he was, and I know Sean Payton's not there anymore. It's Dennis Allen. and you know, But offensively, they're going to be very similar. They still have Kamara. You know, Michael Thomas should be healthy. They're going to have some offensive weapons and a good defense. You know, Jameis Winston, you know, in Bruce Arians, he, he took Bruce Arians to the 30-30 club, 30 touchdowns, 30 picks. You know, he keeps both teams in games. We could throw all this stuff out there that he does, but that's not how the Saints have played. And they've had a good defense. They can run the ball and they get their players involved. And Michael Thomas, he's a receiver that wants an accurate quarterback. Drew Brees didn't have a howitzer on his shoulder by his 20th season. And so Andy Dalton doesn't have that. But if you look at Andy throughout his career, if you give him some protection, you put him in a good environment. You know, when he has a nice defense to play with, he can be accurate. He throws well with timing. He just can't drive the ball down the field anymore. And so I think, honestly, with what the Saints are trying to do, bringing in Andy Dalton, everyone just assumes it's going to be Jameis Winston because his physical attributes are far greater than Andy Dalton's at this point. But I honestly think the Saints are a playoff team with Andy Dalton. I'm not saying they're going to you know, make noise in the playoffs, but looking at that, I think they're probably a 9-10 win team with Andy Dalton at the helm, given everything else they have and what he can ultimately provide. Well, in that case, they need to start Jameis Winston so they can get a quarterback next year. <laughs> you know? And that's probably true. That's the worst place to be, Hutton, like you said, is quarterback purgatory. And Andy Dalton will get them just good enough to be competitive. Um, this year's draft, there wasn't a whole lot, but next year, I think that that'll be much, much different with some of these young guys coming up, man. And, and, you know, it will be forgotten, but how the tide turned on Deshaun Watson's choice in all this, if he chooses new Orleans, if he chooses Atlanta and how those, how those organizations ultimately would have changed the direction of where they're at right now compared to what the Browns are thinking that, that one decision means the, the future of, you know, p- potentially any of these guys, bright, uh, young at Alabama, any of these guys could be the next quarterback of these, these franchises next year. Yeah, and you, you brought that up, you know, Bryce Young, you know, whether it's D.J. Stroud at Ohio State. I mean, there's a number of young guys who we look at like, man, next year's draft class should be much better. Now, maybe that's just all fool's gold because, you know, we were told that some of the young guys last year were supposed to be really good in a couple of years and just you got to wait to see how they pan out but you feel much better about those prospects. But if you look at Atlanta, I mean, once they didn't get him, they traded Matt Ryan because they realized, like, there's no sense. They signed Marcus Mariota to a bridge deal. I think that's the same thing the Saints are doing. And so there's the push-pull within the head coaches and the the front office. Like, the front office would rather get a high draft pick. Head coach doesn't want to lose games. And, And the problem becomes, if you're a head coach and you're playing somebody that your team realizes doesn't give you the best chance to win, you lose credibility and you cannot get that back the next year. And so, you know, by them bringing in Andy Dalton, if players begin to see that in practice, like, Hey, this guy isn't great, but he's a lot more like Drew. And we we were pretty darn good when we had Drew because we just didn't make a lot of mistakes and we're able to convert third downs and move the ball down the field. You look at what Atlanta did, like, Hey, just get rid of Matt Ryan. 
Let's start getting young. Let's try to scrap this thing and start over. And that's probably why Atlanta will be able to rebuild faster. And in five years from now, we'll be in a much better spot. I haven't seen anybody pair Baker Mayfield with the Steelers except for Bobby Carpenter. Uh, where, how do you draw that line? Well, there's a lot. First of all, the Steelers don't have a quarterback. I mean, Mitchell Trubisky, yes. And I know he has been to a Pro Bowl. Um, you know, you're sitting there looking like Dwayne Haskins, like, all right, he, you know, he, he's not really setting the world on fire. If they felt that good about him, he probably wouldn't have signed Trubisky. You know, Rudolph, like, what, what's he do? Like, I just don't feel like it's a good situation there for quarterback wise. In this Pittsburgh, they're not a team that ever tanks it or resets. And I, I just, a lot of people that are Browns fans in the state of Ohio, they think it, it couldn't be any more Browns. Like, if you cut the guy, you drafted number one overall. You don't think he's the guy, but ultimately he ends up in Pittsburgh. Could he come back to haunt you? Like, could he be the guy that leads them to come back and ultimately, you know, comes and wins in Cleveland wearing a Steelers uniform like that, that, that haunts them like Freddy Krueger in their dreams. And I, I also find it like ironic with this. If, if they did ultimately bring him in, you know, you would look at this, you know, they'd have Mitchell Trubisky, who was taken second overall, Baker Mayfield, who was taken first overall, Dwayne Haskins, who was taken in the top 20. And let's just get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. For argument's sake, say that was the case. Those are three first-round draft picks. Two of them were first and second overall. Like, And so people say, ah, Browns gave up too much. Broncos gave up too much. You can draft three quarterbacks in the first round over six years, and there's still no guarantee you're going to get the guy. And I was always a big believer in draft capital and having cheap quarterbacks and everything else. But the way the league has shifted, forget about it. Do what the Rams did. Do what the Browns did. Do what the Broncos did. If you can find a quarterback, if you have to give up three first-rounders, you give up three first-rounders because those picks, it is incredibly difficult to draft a quarterback and make sure you hit on that guy, and then also have a team that you can build around him. Follow Bobby on Twitter at bcarp3 and read and watch his work at outkick.com. Bobby, as always, appreciate it, man. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the Final Four. We'll catch up with you next week. Thanks. Absolutely. The late night, gentlemen, Friday or Saturday, Monday, it's what we all want. We cater to the West Coast. There we go. There we go. Bobby Carpenter there. Not catering to his sleep schedule or sleep patterns, for sure. 9.20 Eastern time, Monday night. National Championship tip time. 9.20 Eastern. It's crazy late. It's nuts. I agree. They probably and you like late. I, I, even I you mean, it, it's, it's late. a late tip on the East Coast. I mean, again, like nine, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you think you're trying to pull the – they're trying to pull the West Coast viewership, but you're also thinking, oh, we pull the West Coast viewership because Gonzaga should be there, right? Like yeah, you're, but, pulling, you're pulling UCLA, Gonzaga. You're trying to get that West Coast hook. Yeah, and it's 6.20 – but, I mean, even if it's an hour earlier, you know, I think of it just like school-age kids, right? So you could get school-age kids on the West Coast and a lot more on the East Coast if it was 8.20 Eastern, 5.20 Pacific, where mom and dad are home from work, at least at that point also. You have an early dinner over watching a national championship game. So kids on the West Coast and kids on the East Coast can both watch it, 
and go to bed at a reasonable hour. 9.20 Eastern time, you're not watching the second half if you're an elementary school kid and you're cultivating younger fans of your sport. Uh, I mean, 9.20 Eastern time, there are some adults who can't stay up for that. Uh, it just needs to be a good game. Yeah. That, that's the key. People stay I'm just up always there. thinking about the kids, Paul. I, I, You're always I, I thinking mean, about adults. I just happen to think about the kids. Well, you know? I, I know well, a lot of kids aren't watching it no matter what time it's on. A lot are, though. Advertisers are spending, and they want that extra million viewers or whatever it will end up being for them if they can pull that. Um, I can tell you who didn't make this decision, Mark Emmert. Uh, he's not making many decisions. And if you want to question who's in power and ask how much power Mark Emmert has with the NCAA, it's a bad sign when Coach K at the presser at the Final Four is asking who's in charge. We'll discuss that next and I'll kick 360. There is a disconnect between college programs, college athletic departments, and the NCAA. And that is very apparent just by listening to Coach Mike Krzyzewski in his final week as a head coach. When he was asked at his press conference, hey, because Mark Emmert, was, was coming on after him. Hey, was that, hey, you want to stick around and listen to Emmert? He goes, oh, I, you know, I'm on the edge of my seat because I have so many questions about the future of where we're headed as a collegiate body for athletics. First off, who's in charge? And if Coach K is asking that question in his final week, normally the coach that's on top, who is the, the standard bearer, Whenever he's carrying the weight of everyone looks at him as the greatest coach sitting in, in college basketball. In the final week, he's putting guys over for the next regime, right? He's setting up things that he really likes in order to go out the right way. You can tell just based on that answer that there is a massive disconnect, even with the best coaches and the best programs who haven't been penalized at the level of LSU or Bruce Pearl or Tennessee. I mean, we can continue down the path here. When Duke is complaining about the NCAA, you know there's a massive disconnect between Mark Emmert's office and the rest of college athletics. I mean, Emmert's got no backing from any of the big What do you think about Coach K's response? In, I thought it was great. I mean, in terms of showing us and, and re- reconfirming what we all think about the NCAA's power uh, and, and hold... Who respects the NCAA? Who, yeah, who? I, I, I'll say this, though. I would have respected Coach K saying this before his final game oh, of his I, career. Yeah, I, I agree with I that, I think it's too. very easy for him to just light things on fire and talk about Mark Emmert uh, being a, a worthless bureaucrat on his way out when he could have been talking publicly about this the for the last time. 15 years right. and maybe reform would have happened quicker. I agree with here's, that, but nobody's doing that. Here's what's going to happen, and it's going to start happening more. But, and this is one of the reasons Coach K is saying this. He doesn't want to light things on fire for Shire either. Uh, on his way out. Craig also, Robinson, he didn't want to create a huge story. Craig Robinson, who is Barack Obama's brother-in-law, the former head coach at Oregon State, is the president of the National Coaches uh, College Coaches Foundation, or whatever it is, association. association. He is organizing a czar of college basketball where each sport independently runs itself separate of the NCAA. This is common sense stuff. College basketball coaches... And college basketball should run their own sport. What's good for men's college basketball is not good for women's crew. And it's all organized under the same rules right now to the NCAA. They've known this for years. But now because people don't like the NCAA, 
and they've lost complete faith in the NCAA, you see more of this happening. It, there's been a lot of talk and writing about the football side of it, forming their own thing to run major college football. That, it's all headed in the same direction. Coach K knows that. He's also on his way out, so he feels a bit emboldened uh, to take some shots at Mark Emmert. I think at one point he said, hey, good luck with the next one to all the reporters because well, he knew Mark Emmert had the next press conference. You, you can take shots at Mark Emmert when you know that Greg Sankey's in charge. That, that's the truth of it all. Greg Sankey's uh, the chair of this transformation committee, uh, and on that board is someone from Ohio State, I believe. There's a, you know several others. I think there's 20, 21 uh, people sitting on this committee. Uh, to come up with what uh, Chad's discussing about the future of regulations and, and, and enforcement of, of rules. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I think, you know, part of it is he's on the national stage and on the way out, he's got nothing to lose. Uh, Coach K saying this. Also, he could say this whenever he wants, to Chad's point, and we could be further down the path of this. But the, the fact that he said it after being asked about it, to me, shows he wasn't just going to randomly, flippantly bring this up. But they hit a nerve by asking, you know, Mark Emmert's finally about to speak publicly. What are your thoughts on that? Are you sticking around for it? Um, it's further confirmation of just how weak the NCAA but all, is. Well, but it's also, it's a fake presser. You've got some figurehead sitting up there who's not in charge. Got power. No he, power. He's, I mean, he's and in no charge answers. of a powerless organization when you really look at the grand scheme of who's running college athletics. That's the truth of it all. They're going to be so pissed off at Duke that they're going to penalize Tennessee and LSU, or well, let, even even below that, they're penalize the Sun Belt Conference for it. Let the NCAA run non-revenue sports. That's the last thing I'll say. The other sports that make money, they should judge. They should legislate themselves. That's a reasonable idea. Well, what's reasonable is actually just having a governing body that's in charge of something.